Bless me, listeners, for I have sinned. It's been three weeks since my last episode. G'day and welcome to the Eloquent in the Room podcast. I'm Rose Cooper and I am very excited today to share with you the interview that I did this morning with Dr. Laurie Mintz, psychologist, sex therapist, lecturer, professor and author and probably a few other wonderful things that I haven't listed. Um, Gosh, it was a delight talking to her. As I mentioned in previous episodes, we had to do a bit of uh, calendar juggling to finally get an appointment to talk. She is so busy and besides being really, really busy in her therapy practice and as a lecturer um, and as a very busy woman on social media, um, she's also got some personal um, illness problems with a member of her family. So I just feel really blessed um, that she was able to find time for me at all. But I was mindful of that. And I kept it quite short. So it's an unusually short podcast episode this time. It's dense. It's chockers, as we say in Australia. It's chockers with um, juicy tidbits of information. It brought up some interesting things for me. Um, It was cool talking to a sex therapist, so I I may have unloaded a bit on her, (laughs) but mind you, she did ask questions, so so that was good. I was, she's so lovely. Um, I would see her if she was in Australia and I wanted to go and see a therapist, I'd go and see her. She's just really, really lovely. Um, So we had a great chat about how to save the world, one orgasm at a time. We both reached very similar conclusions about how to do that. Um, But in the meantime, there are also very practical things that you could do, like buy one of her books. I'm leaving all sorts of links in the show notes this week in regards to things that we talk about in this podcast episode. So without further ado, I'm just going to jump straight into it and then we will do a bit of a debrief at the end. And there's some cool news I want to share with you as well, so stick around. I noticed that before I went to bed last night, you were about to do an Instagram Live about two hours later, and I thought, that's a short gap between talking to me and then, yeah, it's like uh, in your busy This day. is my, let's see, I did an Instagram Live today. This is my second podcast. Um, I did a, a chat on the app Peanut with new moms about sexual desire. I had two clients. I had a work meeting for the university. Now I'm like, I've got to find a way to scale back. But I'm also very excited to talk to you, and I'm not going to shortchange you on the time. We've rescheduled and rescheduled, yeah. and that was on me. So, so yeah. So you put you initially put the book out a couple of years ago. 2017 in hardcover, 2018 in paperback. Okay. And um, how is the initial response compared to the way it's going now, now that you're like a a full force on Instagram? I presume that wasn't the case four years ago when it first came out. No, I didn't have an Instagram account when it came out. Um, And um, it's going really well. Mm. I mean, I'm I'm knock on wood. If I could find some, um, 
I'm so delighted with the the response. Yeah, yeah. It seems that um, the conversation is open and mm-hmm. um, I don't know about your experience, but I find that there's a lot of people that suddenly are jumping on the bandwagon who aren't necessarily qualified to do so. But everybody feels really, really, really passionate about it, which is understandable, mm-hmm. particularly um, people who uh, feel an evangelical about their own experience. They've just discovered things about their body and they want to talk about it. But I thought the cool thing about talking to you is because we are both women of a certain age, my memory of growing up and learning about my body was very much a case of intense curiosity because we weren't taught much. Magazines were talking about it back in the 70s and and early 80s. And because my experience of only in those days, only having an orgasm via clitoral stimulation, I stubbornly thought that was the only way anybody could. I just presumed that I was normal. And I'm wondering if does that reflect your experience growing up as well and you're wondering where the, where the education got lost in translation in regards to the importance? Well, it's, well honestly, it's such a great question and so interesting because the reason I wrote Becoming Cliterate was because of my students' experiences. When I started teaching them about women's anatomy and clitoral stimulation, they were like so relieved mm. and they, I had, I had so many students say, Oh my gosh, until this lecture, I thought I was broken. Mm. And um, it made me realize that an entire generation of knowledge about the clitoris had been lost to this generation of women. And so I started teaching to it and I would get notes like how much better my students felt. Thanks to your class. I'm orgasmic, et cetera. So I was like, I, I have to get this out here. And then what happened was when I was trying to sell the book to a publisher, um, I had two diverse reactions by age group. Mm. Um, People my age, our age, um, were like, what are you doing? Don't we all know this? Mm. Haven't we known this since our bodies ourselves? Like, nobody needs this book. And young women, on the other hand, called my book radical, life-changing. Mm. Like, so I, I, I had, I believe what's happened. And I wrote a blog where I called this young, this generation of women, the most misinformed generation ever. Wow. And I said, and they agreed it went viral because mm. back in my day, we didn't have sex ed so we talked to each other. We read magazines in the sixties. Of course, there was like a feminist awareness of the clitoris, but this generation of women, they don't have sex ed, but what Mm. they have instead are false images Mm. from porn and media and nothing to correct them. So we didn't have information, but we also weren't fighting against misinformation and miss and images that were just so false. Mm. Or when you did see them, I know the first time I saw porn in my late teens, early 20s or or however long, and I was just thinking, is this, do people actually enjoy watching this? It was lots of close-ups. It was like watching open-heart surgery for the most part. And 
it looked fake. (laughs) And people were sort of um, touching the clitoris like they were trying to remove paint from something. Like it was, (laughs) it was just and and spreading the vulva open and doing all this stuff. And I'm I'm thinking, I'm like wincing, thinking, what are you doing? It's delicately, you know. It was all kind of. So I, I don't I don't I don't know if it's just a stubborn idea that you have about something based like your own cognitive bias. When I uh, when I started the podcast, I did a series about orgasm, but I didn't talk about the clitoris. I knew I'd get around to talking about the clitoris, but I wanted to talk about why was female orgasm discredited at all by science? Mm-hmm. Why was it mm-hmm. not given any validation in regards to reproduction? And, you know, like, so I'm like, well, because oxytocin, we have oxytocin via orgasm and that is the bonding hormone and that's what makes us get together and, and reproduce in the first place. Knowing why we have orgasm, I feel, is as, as important as knowing how. Yes, yes. And and of course scientists are still debating right over the function why do women have orgasms? We yeah. know men, you know, and we could get into that. I have a section in the book um you know it's so funny like you know there's like a sidebar in the book that's like half a page long but I can tell you it took me about a month to research and write mm-hmm. that sidebar because you know, it's like now it's a half a paragraph, but it summarizes like years of research yep. on why do women orgasm? Mm. Mm. Yeah. What can we do? Do you feel like there feels like something major has to happen to change the narrative? Because I feel like on one hand, we're talking about clitoris a lot. And on the other hand, we're talking about sex positivity and all of this information is here, but the statistics don't change. That's where I feel lost and where I went off on my research journey. I'm like, we seem to be going backwards, downhill. The statistics aren't changing. What are our expectations and why? And how, yeah. can, we, how can we change our expectations around communication and, and entitlement and empowerment and, you know, yeah. teaching, teaching girls that don't have sex, don't have sex, just don't unless you feel entitled to pleasure. Why are you having right. sex at all? Yeah. Right. I mean, we know, like, for example, in, and I'll get to your question in a minute because it's a beautiful and thoughtful one. You know, we know from research that hookups is where the biggest orgasm gap is. It's massive. Mm. But we also know that good sex minimizes hookup regret. Mm. So I always say to my students, if you're going to hook up, which I mean, I'm not judging it, mm. but what but what I am saying is make sure it's good not just for him we need to teach girls that sex is not something that's done to them it is something they enjoy and can enjoy and you asked a beautiful question how do we teach that you know because you're right there's you know and I exist and you probably exist in the same bubble where you think things are changing because you know I have I follow sex positive social media accounts I talk to other sex therapists But then you look at the studies and things aren't changing and Mm. some things are getting worse. Mm. I think the key, it comes down to sex education. Mm. Um, I just cannot emphasize that enough. I don't know how we're going to get that here in the U.S. because, 
we have such puritanical roots, mm. but the Netherlands is a fabulous example, right? Yeah. They start sex ed early, like in elementary school, they label your body parts. Matter of fact, this is your mm. nose. This is your elbow. That's your vulva. Yeah. On your vulva is your clitoris. Yeah. Like it's just a body part and this is your penis and it gets progressively um, more intense, obviously, um, through high school where they talk about communication, consent, mm. orgasm, pleasure, mm. pregnancy prevention, STI prevention. And guess what? There was an international study of the orgasm gap across cultures and the Netherlands was the lowest, as yeah. was their incidence of sexual coercion and assault. Mm. Why? Because they're teaching. They're yeah. teaching it like it deserves to be taught as lifelong learning. Start now. Mm. Yeah, I feel too, and again, it's cognitive bias based on personal experience, um, that I've had uh casual sex and I've had long-term sex and when I broke up with my first husband and I was out having casual sex I was more inclined to want to sleep with people who I knew had been in a long-term relationship I just presumed that they'd have a better idea (laughs) of what good sex might be and I don't just mean even anatomical I just mean connection and 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 just taking time and and just not, you know, just knowledge of how cool sex is rather than this functional thing of just, you know, jackrabbiting away at, at, at intercourse or, or whatever. Um, and I feel like is part of the problem, um, or not problems, are, again, another word, we cover education, but we're more inclined to have more experiences these days before getting into relationships and I'm this is not I'm not in any way prescribing this in a moral way saying that you need to be in love before you have sex but it seems that we slowed down and had a lot of foreplay go to like parking lots and stuff and make out and not everybody was having sex straight away but we were building up to it more and having better sex and then you get older and you have better sex because you used to to having better sex. So do you feel that um, the hookup culture that we have, which is driven mainly by young men wanting more hookups than relationships, and women want hookups and relationships, but we're learning less. We're having more sex, having loads more sex, but learning less about it because nobody's building up trust and and stuff to to open up to what can be really scary if you've never had an orgasm before? <laughs> that first one can take you by surprise and kind of scare the pants off you, literally. So. <laughs> I think it's such a complicated question. Mm. And it's, it's um, so, I talk most of the, well, not most, but a vast majority of the people I talk to are young women. Yeah. Because I teach young women. And I see a lot of my clients are young women. Um, and it's it's a very, very hard time to be a young woman mm. um, because they're under, the ones I talk to are under so much pressure to have casual sex, but not too soon because you don't want to be called a slut. 
and they're under the same kind of pressure. Don't wait too long because you don't want to be called a prude. Yeah. Um, and the sex they are having isn't that great. Mm. And it's, you know, it's still, it's better in relationships, but still it is very, you know, dominated by male pleasure. The whole, mm. it revolves around male pleasure. The, the literature will tell you this. And my students, they give oral sex more than they get it. Mm. The whole thing resolves, it revolves around penetration. So, you know, is it that we need relationships to find that sexual voice or is it that the culture is so broken when it Mm -hmm. comes to women's sexuality that Mm -hmm. we can't find that voice except in relationships Mm -hmm. so I think it's a really complicated really nuanced topic and what I simply encourage my clients and my students to do is figure out what works for you Mm -hmm. and I do have some who love hookup sex Mm. And I say to them, if that's the case, then make sure it's good. And I have successful stories of women hooking up and orgasming. Um, On the other hand, I also have many students who say after giving it some deep thought, no, not for me. I'm not Mm. I'm not going to be part of hookup culture. Mm. Um, I made a kind of a joke on Instagram and it, it, it was well received. I didn't think it would be It was like why don't we have a hookup strike? Mm. Like until we, our pleasure is considered equally important. Let's start a strike. Mm. You know, I mean, obviously we can't really do that, but can't we though? So I think there's a lot of pieces and I, you know, honestly, I've been with the same partner for 39 years Mm. and we have fabulous sets Mm. in part of it is, the comfort knowing each other, of course, mm. part of it. And there is a great book. I'm babbling a little, but I, that came out um, by Betty, uh, Betty. Oh, I am tired today. Peggy Kleinplatz. I don't know if you've right. um, read it. It's called Magnificent Sex. Mm. And it's a study of people who have magnificent sex. Mm. And the fir- the average age of the first instance of magnificent sex that they report is guess what age? 55. Um, yeah. <laughs> I should have let you guess. <laughs> no, uh, that's the thing. It's because I've had, uh, I had a, lots of casual sex before I got married for the first time. And that was because I wanted people to like me. I've, I've looked back and I examined why was I having sex? So I wanted I wanted to be liked. I had, I, I was lonely and, and awkward and I, I was picked on in school and all that. So, so, and I was curious about sex. So those two things. Then we broke up in my mid thirties and I was used to having sex and my body was used to having lots of orgasms during the week. So when we broke up, I had a, a twofold reason. My libido was high. So I wanted to have sex and the other one was I was in my mid-30s and thought I was past it. <laughs> and I had two children. Who's going to want to have sex with me? You know, little did I know, everybody sort of thing. is like yeah, the way society messes with our egos in regards to what childbirth does to our bodies and all this sort of stuff. It's just all, it, it's so misogynistic and, and awful. Um, so I had sex because I wanted to share an orgasm share my orgasm with other people. I I prefer that to being alone at the time. And I just, 
I also, I guess, wanted that performative aspect. I've been, I've been married for a long time. Look at what I can do <laughs> or something. I don't know. But then I was in another long-term relationship, but breaking up in my early 50s, then I was like really, um, really screening people in regards to the sex that, um, cause I thought it doesn't matter what you do, what that person does. I know I'm going to have an orgasm regardless of what you do. Are we going to have chemistry? Will I like you? Will I be motivated to have connection with you? Cause for me, that's great sex. The orgasm's going to be more explosive, more likely to have a full body cause I'll be able to express myself to the maximum, but I never, gauged good sex or bad sex on whether or not I had an orgasm because I always did have an orgasm because I, I made it my point. I made it my point to have one. Okay. Yeah. So I think this is like a great role model for young women. Mm. So, I mean, I know you're interviewing me, but can I ask you a question that would yeah. be very interesting to me um, as the author of Becoming Cliterate and as someone who really works with young women on feeling entitled to orgasm because what I'm hearing is that you are very you feel empowered and entitled and equally you know you know your orgasm is important you're going to have it so my question for you and this is a little personal so feel free to say I don't want to talk about it here but (laughs) you know it's your podcast ask away ask Um, away but um when you do you orgasm from penetration, clitoral stimulation, or a combination? Um, most I, reliably. Most reliably, um, it's usually either clitoral stimulation and or a combination. However, once I've had one orgasm, the next four or five can happen anyway in any way, uh-huh. shape or form, because I've, I found that the first one is like um, the first domino. I've always been motivated to train my body and I feel that that's a good thing in an autonomous way, but in absolute honesty, in my first marriage, I was pressured to have sex on his clock with his libido. Mm-hmm. And by defence of that, was if we're going to have sex, I want to make sure I enjoy it as well. But rather than become more connected to him as a result, I went inward and I would fantasize during sex. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I also learned that if I was to contract my pelvic floor muscles, that I could bring orgasm quicker doing Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So I trained myself and I look back, it was all a uh, self-defense or I was very dissociative about it I just knew that we were having sex because he wanted to have sex a lot I also enjoyed sex but I was less motivated to do it three or four times a week having said that he was always about my pleasure too so I think the pressure to have an orgasm before he would um, penetrate me he would make sure that I had a bunch of orgasms via clitoral stimulation anyway it was an ego boost for him to make sure I had a bunch of orgasms and then we'd finish with intercourse. Okay. So that's really, really beautiful. And I, <laughs> and I'm so glad you're sharing all that because I think what the young women I work with struggle with is getting that clitoral stimulation mm. that, that they need 
to orgasm. Mm. And, you know, they'll get like two seconds and that's it. And then intercourse. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of them are having sexual pain because of that, because they're not aroused enough for mm-hmm. penetration. And they say, oh, it would be pushy, pushy to say that I need clitoral stimulation. And I'm like, mm. but the men don't think it's pushy to ask for the intercourse. Like Mm. it's not pushy. And I feel like what you just said can be such a great role model Mm. for young women. Like Mm. it's like, yeah, most of us 96% about need clitoral stimulation Mm. for orgasm alone or coupled with penetration. And you're one of those people, right? That once you reach that arc, it's easier from any method. Yeah. But, but that's so kiss, many, kissing yeah. and, and, and <laughs> whatever whatever comes next. But but I feel like it's because my body is after years and years and years and years of like 32 years of my life of two marriages, 16 years apiece, my orgasm was prioritized. So I kind of call it wife privilege. That's <laughs> kind of like that's the way it worked out. So um, I found that sometimes my experiences weren't reflected in literature and I had to really, really look because I found that because my body was able to be orgasmic, that I was more dependent on kissing and I was more dependent on breast stimulation and I was more dependent on all of these things to heighten my arousal before any before my clitoris was was touched because the clitoris was such a automatic orgasm yeah. but that that didn't necessarily mean it was going to be a good one right and yeah and this, yeah no this so is so important I'd, yeah. I'd be slowing it down see I, I we're teaching girls unfortunately where the pressure is have an orgasm in a certain period of time and we've dictated that they take 20 minutes and uh, or something I know Betty Dodson or sort of said well grab a vibrator put it down there and in about 20 minutes you'll have an orgasm and I'm like but without oxytocin before you even touch a clitoris it's going to be an annoying feeling like to me it's all about being in the mood before you even go near touching yeah, and, and mm. the you know the average amount of pre genital contact mm. um like that the average amount that young people are having today, a research study showed less than five minutes. Yeah. They're <laughs> spending less than five minutes on mm. what I call the warm up event. Mm. Mm. And, you know, clitorises don't like to be touched dry. You need to be aroused. Mm. And sure, every once in a while, you're really hot to trot with your vibrator or your partner and zoom and off yeah. you go. Yeah. But, um, in most of us need much more warm up before mm. our clitorises are touched. And what's happening now is a little kissing, two minutes of clitoris touching, in goes the penis. No wonder these young women are having horrific sex. Mm. You've just made me realize something actually, um, particularly about the age thing. And I think it's older women are really lucky because once you get past caring, about whether or not you're universally sexually attracted, attractive to people and that people are going to be wanting to have sex with you because of the way you look. Mm-hmm. You know that the reason why they want to have sex with you is because of the way it feels. 
Yeah. Because it's good sex, rather. So you don't even think about that. You're thinking about the sex and not about how your body looks. Right. And I think that's a huge piece of why sex gets better for many women as we age. Now, many women get... I mean, no statements can be universal. I talk to many women who dislike their bodies and are having bad sex at Mm. all ages. Mm. But by and large, we know sex gets better for women as we get older. Why? We get more comfortable in our own skin. Mm. We get more comfortable knowing what we need. Mm. And we get more comfortable saying what we need. (laughs) Or or just saying, slow down. What are you doing? I, I would be like, I'd have sex with guys in their 20s and 30s when I was in my 50s. And they'd be like you say, kiss, reach down, do something. And you're thinking, what are you doing? What's your hurry? Slow down. And I would yeah. just be, or leave. <laughs> yeah, those, so, those are your options. <laughs> uh, you know, there's that old song, I'm a terrible singer, but slow down, you're moving too fast. <laughs> We got to make groovy. the orgasm last just. <laughs> hey, I think I think we should cover that. I think we should make a song. Forget the podcast and the book writing. Let's make a song. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that could be the pop culture. We were talking before about people's short attention span. Yeah. It's like yeah. a nurse, nursery rhyme for adults. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, now what's, what's the most common question that you get asked before I wrote the book or but yeah. the most common question well, I in your, asked, in your practice, in your, oh, in my yeah. practice. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I would have to say it's again, split between, um, generational lines for my younger clients. It's have I had an orgasm? How do I have an orgasm? How do I know if I have an orgasm? For my older clients, and especially my clients who um, are young moms or stressed out, it's where did my desire go? Mm. How do I get it back? Mm. I've lost my desire. I don't feel horny anymore. Yeah. So what's your advice for for that person usually? Oh, well, my advice, and that's actually the topic of my first book, which was called A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate (laughs) Sex, Um, which, you know, is that what we don't know is what lay public people don't know, us sex therapists and researchers know, that there's something called the limerence phase when you're falling in love with someone or really attracted to them and it's all you can think about and oh my gosh, it's such a lovely stage and you're so horny and it's everything is so great. Um, and it's so exquisite. We expect that to last, mm. but it's not supposed to last. It's mm. a biochemical stage. I'm sorry to say it so harshly, but the average, most women, um, not all, but the vast majority of women, it sounds like you were not one of those, but the overwhelming majority of women do stop feeling spontaneously horny mm. and then they stop having sex. Mm. And what I tell them is if the, you have arousal, if the sex is good when it gets going, which many women tell me it's good when it gets going, yeah, then yeah. I don't have any interest anymore. I tell them reverse the equation. Mm. That is have sex to get horny rather than waiting to be horny to have sex. Decide your ideal frequency, 
with your partner, Mm. set time aside, you know, that way you're getting your brain ready. Maybe you're fantasizing all day. Maybe you watch some erotica, whatever it takes, but then the touch will lead you to the Mm. desire. And it's actually a legitimate form of desire. It's called receptive desire instead of spontaneous desire. I'm receptive to the idea of sex because I know it'll be fun when it gets going. I know I'll sleep better. I know I'll feel closer to my partner. So I tell them, reverse the equation and have, I don't call it a planned sexual encounter because people go, ooh, but I call it a tryst. What's a tryst? A planned meeting between lovers. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, as you know, when you you have kids and and you are tired and and you think, oh, I couldn't be bothered. But afterwards, after you have sex and orgasms afterwards, you always go, oh, my God, I needed that. (laughs) Right. I feel so much better. Yeah. And I find because I've been celibate for like a year and a half and for the foreseeable future, I'm not really thinking about relationships and, and or hookups. I'm just sort of over it all that I have to put a conscious effort into reminding myself to prioritize masturbation and also just change my mindset around what that is and why I'm doing it and thinking about loving myself rather than just getting off and, and, and realizing that my oxytocin levels are really, really low because my children are older. I'm not cuddling anybody at the moment. So you got to, you got to cuddle yourself and yes, yes. I love mm. that. Make a date with yourself. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, have a tryst with yourself. Lay down and enjoy the time. Your favorite lover can be you. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny when you, when things are good when your libido is high, as you said, like for me, I have to be crushing on someone for my libido to be thinking about that person specifically in order to feel horny. You forget that when it's easy, that to a certain degree it's also orchestrated and you can orchestrate it. But you just have to to put your mind to orchestrating it. So if I remember back in the day when I was a young girl first falling in love and think about it, really, really think about it, um, I realised that I was lost and I didn't know and everything was new and I feel so much sympathy and empathy for young girls still feeling so vulnerable and open and they're thinking in terms of what lingerie I should wear or, or whether or not um, I should get a boob job or, or all of the things and, and less to do with just how nice it is to have fun with someone that you like and have this rush of energy that's about um, discovering sexuality organically rather than, oh, well, I'm... I'm supposed to be having sex and not knowing anything about it. It's it's tragic, yeah. isn't it? It's, mm. it's very difficult. It's And I have a lot of empathy too, which is why I love working with young people and trying to empower them. I tell them most people don't have great sex till they get older, but you don't have to wait. Mm. I can give you all the tools yeah. you need now. Yeah. So how do you self-care around this? Because I imagine you're like me, feel sad like really sad talking to people and have listened to the words come out of their mouth that are low self-esteem and self-defeating and and disempowered 
I, yeah, it's not like I don't feel sad when I hear stories or even tear up with my clients at times, but I also have seen positive changes. So many people that I work with make so many positive life affirming changes that I just find it rewarding. And I have a lot of faith Mm. in the process of therapy and in sex education that if we get through these hard times, we'll get to a better place. Mm. Um, But what, but I always, you know, take, I do take care of myself. That's like very important to me. I sleep eight to nine hours a night. Mm. Um, I literally, I go to bed at nine o'clock. I'm like Mm. an hour away from my bedtime. Mm. You know, I exercise every day. I mean, I make time for walking, swimming, yoga. Um, I try to eat healthy, put things in my body that are good for me. I mean, I'm not like a saint about it. Like there's days I'm really don't get enough sleep and there's days I'm too busy to do my exercise. But by and large, I get, I take really good care of myself. And I feel like that mitigates the stress of some of the hard work I do that's emotionally mm. draining. Mm. Yeah. Oh, good on you. What What's next for you? Like with all, like it's been a few years since that book, what do you feel like the next thing that you have to say? I don't know yet. Mm. I had some thoughts before the pandemic and like many people, the pandemic threw a lot of what I was thinking into a tailspin. So I don't know. I'm open to... I'm, I haven't been in the classroom for a couple of years because um, I was on a sabbatical and I had a family health issue. So I'm going to let my students' voices inspire me this year in the classroom. Mm. Becoming Cliterate came from my students' pain. A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex came from my own and my you know, friends' and clients' pain. I'm going to see what the... I'm just going to listen with an open mind and an open heart. Mm. And I'm going to see what is it out there that I feel that women need to hear. And I don't know what that is yet. Mm. Yeah. It feels like um, that's been the tone of the, the interview. We, we kind of know how to get there, but how to get the message out yeah. in a way that doesn't shame anyone, doesn't pressure anyone, doesn't have any kind of moral ground, just like encourage people to be curious and authentic about who they are and what. Yes, what exactly. Yeah do, yeah, do things for the reasons that they, they want to do. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, before you go, sorry, I'll just realise there's one more question. Like I am of the opinion that men don't have to teach us how to give them an orgasm and I don't feel like I feel like the blame is being disproportionately sort of dished out to men not knowing about women's bodies I'm not sure how much women know about men's bodies Um, but I feel like there's there's still the idea that absolutely we need to get the information out there that our bodies work a certain way but take that initiative to teach people that we're with rather than expect them to know and then get angry and sort of say I had bad sex with this guy because he didn't know where my clitoris was and you think well why are we expecting men to know these things 
Well, I think that I hear a lot of this blaming too. They, yeah. Women aren't telling me. Men aren't learning. I blame culture. Mm. Um, if we had better sex ed, there'd be no one to blame. Yeah. And I think I think the onus. I think part of why we don't need to teach, we don't need to. Men don't teach us, but we know is because we're giving them orgasms giving in quotes through Mm. intercourse. Mm. And why are we doing that? Because our whole heterosexual cultural script revolves around that. Our heterosexual cultural script revolves around the act that gives men orgasms, not which gives women orgasms. So I think, A, we need to change the culture and make Mm. clitoral stimulation as much sex as intercourse. I mean, think about the words we use, sex and intercourse, as if they're one and the same. Yeah. So I don't blame either women or men. And how about if we take a 50, 50, Mm. let's get, have some men. If you're going to, if you're going to be with women, educate yourself Mm. and women, if you're going to be with men, learn how to tell them what you need and feel empowered to do so. Yeah. And Hollywood, if you're going to make a movie about two people having sex, how about you do everything except the intercourse and we'll take the intercourse as implied that after after you're cutting, that he's about to enter her. But let's let's do more of the foreplay on, yes, on screen yes. instead. Oh, I, <laughs> you're singing my song. Yes, absolutely. There's even a um, social media handle. There's a group on a couple of young women on Instagram that started this handle called the Clit Test, mm. and they talk about movies that either pass or fail the clit test mm. because do they show accurate portrayals of female pleasure mm. and we need more of those i'm going to look yeah. that up oh yeah I'll the look. clit test they're wonderful yeah awesome i'll drop that into the show notes so that people can look it up ah. um, so with your book people can still get it online are you have you done a an audio book that's yes a, it yeah. is um, becoming clitored is available now in hardcover paperback which has some revisions from the hardcover, some improvements, um, Kindle and audiobook and audio CD, all available where books are sold. All right. Well, absolutely delightful talking to you. You too. Thank you for having me on. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Keep doing wonderful work and I'll no doubt see you on Instagram. <laughs> all right. I will see you there. Thank you. No worries. Thanks, Laurie. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You know, one thing I'm noticing lately in my interviews is how much more I'm opening up about my own personal life and experiences. And I think the main reason for that is I'm just trying to constantly get across that becoming orgasmic might come perfectly naturally to you. But more often than not, it is a learned skill. Um, Also, much of what our bodies learn to do is accumulative over time. The more orgasms you have, the more orgasmic you become and the more an orgasm can evolve and change in character and uh, in size. As um, Laurie was saying, um, there's a phenomenon of women getting past a certain age and having more explosive full-body orgasms. And it seems to be down to just shedding a lot of the self-consciousness. That could be it. Could be many things. Could be just by virtue of 
uh, hormones or whether or not you've had children or whether or not you're in an a long-term relationship or a brand new relationship after a long-term relationship. There's so many different factors that influence why one day you're having an orgasm this way and then the next day you're having a completely different kind of orgasm and it's coming from a different source or whatever. But I think generally you can surmise a few things about what makes a woman more orgasmic and the overarching thing I think I want to continually reinforce with my listeners is that it's a skill. It's something you learn to recognize in your body and allow. And it's something your body learns to do and remembers to do. Anybody who has ever tried an exercise routine, whether it's learning to jog and you know that, you know, the first kilometer is always the hardest. (laughs) And You train yourself to go a little bit further each time and then you become quite good. The next thing you know, you're going for effortless five-kilometer jogs and then for whatever reason, you might get sick and, and have to have a week off and then you go back out for your first jog after taking a week off and you're more aware after having a break, you're more aware of how your muscle memory is working, how it is responding to the exercise. You can feel your thighs uh, flexing. You can, <laughs> you can feel them fill with, your muscles sort of fill with blood quickly and, and stuff. The machine of your body working because you have been in training these six months beforehand. Your body knows what it's doing. Look, I'm no doctor, all right, <laughs> but that's kind of the way orgasms work. As I was saying, I, I, I've learned how it happens um, and later in life I learned what it is and why it is and I've sort of done a lot of research in in how the neural pathways work in relation to orgasm and that does open you up even more. And Learning about the clitoris is very important, absolutely, but you've also got to learn that that the nipples are also very sensitive and responsive and your cervical area is also sensitive and responsive and so are the nerve endings around your anus. I'm not exactly a big fan of anal sex personally myself. It is not for me. And I reject the notion (laughs) that there's anything wrong with me for rejecting anal sex. It's my own personal decision and I have very good reasons for it. It's optional. It's absolutely optional. People can become very prescriptive about what the right kind of orgasm is and the best kind of orgasm is and what sex positivity is. And, uh, And it's usually around about the time they make discoveries about themselves incrementally over their lives and think, wow, I thought I used to know stuff, but now I know more stuff. So you could do a lot worse than to listen to women who are over 40, over 50 when they tell you about their experiences with a view to say to you, what we figured out was these things are a skill, these things are learned, and there's no reason why you can't learn them while you're younger Um, and the first thing you have to do to learn to be more orgasmic and more responsive is to shed 
any self-esteem problems, any body issues that you have, any feeling that your orgasm is in any way, any kind of inconvenience to anyone else. That's all patriarchal bullshit. That's all cultural bullshit. Um, Look, if I could whisper into the ears of 14-year-old girls the world over simultaneously, I'd probably say something like this. Don't be in a hurry to grow up. Don't be in a hurry to get into a long-term relationship. Don't compare yourself with other people, either favorably or unfavorably. Try and learn to recognize how much of what you think about things is actually influenced by the opinion of other people and don't really align with your own personal values. Don't place your self-worth in your appearance or other people's worth in their appearance. Treat your body like the absolute miracle of nature that it is regardless of what shape it is in. Start your feminist research now. (laughs) Learn everything you can about the patriarchy, about misogyny, through the ages up till now. You've got to know the history of things so that you can make a really informed idea about how much of history that is stupid is influencing what you think now. (laughs) Nip that internalized misogyny in the bud. I tell you what, friends, I did not start to address my own personal internalized misogyny until I started to love myself and that really didn't start happening until I was in my late 20s and it was a very slow process that took decades. It started in my late 20s but I would have relapses from time to time when I sunk as low as you can sink in regards to valuing myself and even now daily I still can be amazed by the remnants of internalized misogyny that I still carry with me even though I feel like I've gotten rid of most of them. There's still stuff there. And a big part of exorcising those demons is manifested in doing this podcast and in doing all the posts that I do on social media and the little videos that I've been doing lately, shouting from the rooftops how much I love myself and... uh, how beautiful I am without makeup or how I don't give a shit if anyone thinks I'm beautiful or not or all that stuff. I'm sort of really the anti-ageism, love yourself fucking poster girl right now. I'm doing my best to have fun with not taking myself seriously, hoping that people will laugh but recognize the truth in what I'm doing and maybe thinking, well, if that old bitch can do it, I can feel better about myself too. Part of me shedding this stuff is happening in real time while I'm doing this. I didn't fall out of the womb feeling good about myself. It's a torturous process. And 
it hurts my heart so much to see how little women value themselves just for the wonderful, amazing beings they are and how they shortchange themselves in relationships and in the sexual experiences that they have with other people, how they just come away from it shortchanged, thinking of um, whether or not the other person thought they were good in bed without caring, whether or not they had a good time with that person. There's a lot of cognitive dissonance around it. And that's the kind of stuff I'm really keen to explore as I keep going with the podcast. Uh, The evolution of the subject matter has been a meandering one, started off with orgasm. We're revisiting it in this episode and also I want to remind you that I did start the podcast with four episodes about orgasm and... I think it's wonderful that people like Laurie have written books that she's written and that there are other great books out there and every time I find more good reading material or more good websites that you should follow, I'm going to be the one to point to them. I'm going to continually promote Sexplanations on YouTube as the best sex educator I've found so far, the most thorough and just all-inclusive sex educator. So, yeah, Um, I just want to do my bit. Speaking of doing my bit, (laughs) um, trying to cram a lot in over the last few weeks while I've been in a, a bit of a hiatus. And I said a few podcasts back too that I was going to relax about the podcast. I wasn't going to worry too much about putting it out like clockwork every two weeks. I was just going to let it happen organically. And in the last few weeks, interesting thing is prospective guests have come out of the woodwork. I've either introduced myself to people and asked them to appear on the podcast and they've said yes. And people have introduced themselves to me um, in my DMs and on comments on Instagram. And Neck Minute... Um, they have asked to be on the podcast. So I've got about four or five interviews lined up for August and September. I have to get my shit together. I have to get really organised. I have to really get this admin part of being a creative down. Um, And part of that has been working really hard over the last couple of weeks too on getting a Patreon together. Um, I made a video and just that alone was a process of coming up with an idea and then editing it and um, and then getting brave enough to put it up there and then putting an intro and, and all this stuff. It's I get a bit of brain fog. I get a bit of anxiety around the tech stuff and the marketing stuff. Um, the creating stuff as well uh, doesn't cause me as much anxiety because I do believe in myself as a creator But then telling the world to listen to me and watch me and now asking people to support me on Patreon, that's a lot of anxiety. Um, But it's there. I'm on patreon.com forward slash the eloquent in the room, one word. I have one 
supporter so far. Thank you very much, wonderful person, for jumping onto my Patreon. Um, Everybody gets behind-the-scenes stuff. I haven't started doing a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff yet. I'm going to uh, get some transcripts, particularly of that first series, the orgasmic series. I'm going to work on a transcript for that, for that to be available for free download for people who'd rather read it than listen to it or just to have it as reading material to pass on to people if they want to. And everyone gets music. Everyone gets everybody, my debut single, and everyone will get the EP when it comes out. So I'll give you download links to download your own MP3s of my music. People who don't really know what Patreon is or the whole crowd crowdfunding thing is, I actually explain it on my video. But I am a patron of a couple of people on Patreon, uh, one of whom was the first person I became a patron of, which was Amanda Palmer when she first jumped onto Patreon. Because I'm all about who she is. I really strongly identify with the stuff that she makes. I'm inspired by and emboldened by what she does. Um, And being behind the scenes in her life is a masterclass in self-belief and creativity and feminism and being brave enough to learn from your mistakes and believing that it's okay to be a multidisciplinary artist. Um, I've scored so much cool shit from being her patron and it costs me bugger all. The price of a cup of coffee once a month. I don't think you can overestimate how much connection matters to people and as we become more distanced and alienated in a world of technology, we can also find connection in it. So we can't lose sight of that. So I would like my Patreon to be a community where people find connection. And if people want to be my cheerleader, that would be great. And in turn, I'm going to do my best to be your cheerleader. And that is what is behind my art. Cheerleading other women and other people to try and be better people, to love yourself more, to embody feminist ideals and anti-bigotry ideals I'm a work in process I haven't got it all figured out I definitely haven't got it all figured out but I got some shit figured out (laughs) I'm doing all right Um, so yeah if you want to support me on Patreon whether it's uh, a one-off support or an ongoing support it would be most appreciated I'm going to keep doing it anyway, producing what I'm producing. Um, So I'm going to leave it there, uh, a little teaser for upcoming podcasts, pretty much the next two or three throughout um, August and September. It's going to be more about sex, uh, generally speaking. And um, yeah, it's just just the way it's worked out. Uh, Laurie has kicked it off, but I've got some really interesting people coming up. Spoiler alert, Phoebe Doran is coming back. She wanted to talk about something very specific with me and she wanted to uh, open up and exchange um, intimate information with each other about stuff. So that's coming up, recording that in a few weeks. I'm looking forward to that. And yeah, Uh, 
uh, it's not just about me being a journalist and this is my research and me being an older person and this is how, what I've learned being an older person, but um, it's also me being vulnerable and saying, look, I haven't got it all figured out either. I'm learning on the fly. Uh, I think that's a big part of what I get about being um, an Amanda Palmer patron is she is so human and so flawed and so flawless in her flawedness. <laughs> and I'm nothing like her, but I'm everything like her. And it's because of her that I make music and that I'm brave enough to be a podcaster and brave enough to start a Patreon. Another way to be supportive is tell people about me, share the podcast. Even if you don't listen to this podcast on Apple, but you have an iPhone, you can still go into Apple Podcasts and find the eloquent in the room and give me a five-star rating and a review would be a bonus. But the world does revolve around Apple, even though there are lots and lots and lots of podcasts out there and podcast apps out there. It's that Apple algorithm that gets you onto those charts and getting onto those charts is what gets you noticed and what grows your audience. And while my Instagram audience is growing and that feedback is growing, um, the podcast, not so much. I'm not getting much feedback. Um, the feedback I do get is effusive. It's absolutely effusive. People saying how life-changing some of them have been and that's wonderful. So that's why I am taking the feedback of a few to embolden myself, to ask more of you, to please, you know, share, like, review, rate, um, to give other people a chance to listen to the podcast because people are finding it valuable. You don't have to be really popular to justify doing what you do, but doing what you do becomes pointless unless people know about it. So um, I would really appreciate it if you all would help me let more people know about it. Follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever your particular social media is of choice. Um, and yeah, that's my lengthy plug. I'm going to have to distill that into a much shorter one for my sign-offs. <laughs> um, it's going to take some practice. Um, I love you all so much. Please give yourselves a big hug wherever you are in the world and know that I love you and thank you for listening. Talk to you soon. <laughs>